Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. Now, beachcombing is a very pleasant pastime, but not one that usually leads to biography. But that's exactly how Suzanne Falconer came to spend more than six years writing the biography of Rose de Fresinet, a remarkable young French woman who stowed away on her husband's expedition in 1817 and circumnavigated the globe as the only woman among 120 sailors. It's a story of romance and survival with moments of scandal, farce, glamour and danger. Suzanne Falconer is a seasoned biographer. She's the author of 13 books, most recently Mick, A Life of Randolph Stowe, about the Australian novelist and poet. Rose de Fresinet presented her with fresh challenges, not the least of which is that she doesn't speak French. Did that discourage her? Mais pas du tout. I talked to Suzanne at her home in Sydney. I began by asking her about what the connection between beachcombing and biography was for her. Well, there isn't really one, but I was driving up the coast of Western Australia from Geraldton towards Shark Bay, and it's a long drive with the desert on one side and the Indian Ocean on the other. And I took a break and started walking along a beach, and I'd read one of those useful parks and wildlife notice boards saying, Rose de Freycinet landed here in September 1818 and enjoyed the oysters she ate and she met some Mulgana warriors or spear-carrying huntsmen who frightened the life out of her. And I thought, this is such an incongruous vision of a contemporary of Jane Austen, 23 years old, French girl from the, the left bank, walking along this deserted beach, wearing a sunbonnet and an Empire Line gown <laughs> before any settlement in Western Austra- European settlement in, in Western Australia was ever established. And I thought, well, I have to follow this up. Okay, so when were you walking along that beach where you had that moment of revelation? What year are we talking about there? Oh, six or seven years ago, I was in Western Australia researching Randolph Stowe. Yes, so you're a seasoned biographer. You have written several biographies, of which that is the most recent. Is this the one that's taken the most amount of time of the books that you've written? No, Randolph Stowe took much, much longer. But this did take longer than I expected, because once I started going down the rabbit hole... I had to keep going deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole and into different rabbit holes, mainly because I'd I'd rather forgotten I didn't speak French. This was going to be my next question, and we come to the crux of the matter with you saying that, because that seems to me kind of the height of folly to contemplate writing a biography of someone in a language, about someone whose language you don't speak. I just cannot imagine adding to the already existing degrees of difficulty of biography with that. And particularly since she wasn't the kind of well-known public figure where her letters and diaries would have been translated into English already. I did live in Paris for a year when I was in my early 20s, but of course I mixed with English-speaking people and and only got a, a scant knowledge of French at the Alliance Francaise. But I can read it better than I can speak it. But what my original idea was that I knew the, or I discovered that the journal that she wrote 
which was, of course, the most interesting thing about this whole story. First woman to circumnavigate the world and leave a written account of it had been translated into English. So I thought, got hold of the journal and read it and thought, well, it would be really interesting to contextualise this. What was happening in the countries that she visited mm -hmm. and made you know, scant notes about what was happening in Australia, what, what was happening around the story, underneath the story. So I started looking into other accounts and, and Nicholas Bodin and Matthew Flinders and uh, her husband's story and all the rest of it. But then I realised there was a certain blandness to the journal as it was published in English. And I discovered that it had been translated from a published version in France that was issued in 1927. But that French version had been somewhat bardlerized by the male editor who transcribed it. And it had also been read and altered by various family members a couple of generations on. Ah, sanitised. They didn't want to mention anything that might embarrass the family or seem unladylike or, you know, various other things like this. So I literally was, well, not literally, but um, I was more or less forced to go back to the original documents. So the original documents being not only the original journal in French, but also presumably the letters, because correspondence is a really important part of this biography. And she wrote to her mother, to whom she was very devoted, and to her best friend. So you had to contend with her handwriting, a foreign language. I mean, this is really quite... What was her hand like? What was her handwriting like? Well, it was too neat, <laughs> which is a problem. Because if, if, if writing is extremely neat and uniform... The U's and the M's and the N's and the W's all look the same. And if you don't have an expert knowledge of French, so you can contextualise what the word might be and guess from the rest of the sentence, it's, it's, it's probably more difficult oh than... Oh, my God. And did she missing. do that thing that we see in the letters of so many people of that period to save space on the paper? Did she do the cross-writing where she would write vertically and horizontally? Fortunately, she didn't. Oh, thank God. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, she was quite often writing in a, in a ship's cabin. Yes. Um, you know, with the ship oh. rocking and with storms. You know, so the, the, the journal itself, which, which oddly enough is in the uh, State Library of New South Wales, you can almost sort of read the atmosphere from <laughs> how messy the page is. <laughs> <laughs> I love that detail, the idea that the ship was rocking and tilting and rolling while she maintained this very neat hand and penmanship, mm, mm, but well, rel relative. <laughs> relatively speaking. And, and, of course, I love the detail also that that journal has ended up here in New South Wales and not in France. Is there a story behind that? Well, all her, well, her letters and her husband's transcriptions of many of her letters written on, on the voyage, and a whole trove of other Freycinet documents have been acquired by the State Library. There is a, a huge collection, which is absolutely fascinating. So again, of course, more and more rabbit holes kept multiplying. I ended up with a book that was about uh, 160,000 words 
long. Oh, every publisher's nightmare. Every publisher. And, and, and my loyal and wonderful agent read the whole thing and we both agreed it had to be shortened. So I shortened it and some publishers looked at it and they said it's still too long. And I, I knew it was true, but, of course, cutting all this hard-won detail. Mm. And there were so many fascinating side stories. Anyway, we, we ended up with something that I, could, I, can, I can live with and, and a publisher could live with. So Thank goodness. So just let's go back to the French thing. I mean, given the kind of challenge that that was, how did you get around the fact that you, as you put it, forgot that you don't speak French? Did you recruit someone to act as your translator from the get-go? Or how did you, how did you deal with that? Well, I hate to admit it, but I found if I copied French passages from books and things that I could transcribe easily into Google Translate and then compared them with the various versions that were extant, you know, the original journal, the Bardlerized version, the English version, the Italian version. I've got a little bit of Italian, and there has been a, a, full, a full version transcribed into Italian. I could, I could then do a free translation that was pretty accurate to, to the original. So I was sort of consulting different sources for the most accurate and, and realistic and perhaps, I don't know, that sounded most like my idea of Rose for the English translation. What a business. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Rose and her background and where she comes from and how she comes to be on this ship, which is a remarkable story in itself. But let's just talk about where she comes from and where she belongs in the kind of stratification of French society post-revolution at the time. Well, she was born during the French Revolution and until a friend of mine in France went back to the village records, the parish records of the village she was born in, nobody knew much more about her apart from the fact that her mother's name was Jeanne Pinon. Nobody knew what her father did, what her background was, anything like that. But with the help of these village records, and of course the internet now, there's a lot of genealogical stuff that you could get that you couldn't get 10, 20 years ago, I was able to learn quite a lot about her background. She was born in a small village called Saint-Julien-de-Salt in the Rion River Valley in Burgundy on the 29th of September 1794, which was extremely odd because her family lived in Paris. Mm. And I have a theory that because her family, her father's background, was royalist, or one could assume could be royalist, because they were all artists and watchmakers and jewellers and, and weapon armourers. So they would have required the, royal patronage. To the royal family. Right. That they would have been considered rather sus during the revolution. So I suspect they probably retreated to this village to you know to be away from Paris but they did return to Paris Rose's mother Jeanne Pinon was or uh, Jeanne Tozanne as she was born was the daughter of a carriage maker but then it's quite possible that she was from a reasonably well-off family because carriages were expensive and used by the the gentry her mother was a school teacher 
or she was a linguist. And after her husband died when Rose was very young, she took in pupils and started a school that became quite large. She was quite an intellectual. She was very well read. So Rose grew up in this fortunate position while not being an aristocrat, and quite a lot of aristocrats were extremely ignorant. Mm. She was very well educated. She, she had a, a grasp of a sight grasp of several languages. She was very well read. She was well informed in, in French literature. She read history. She wrote well. She could dance a minuet. She had very good manners. She could conduct herself in, in polite society. She could play the piano. She could play the piano. She could play the guitar. So she made a... Not only did she make a very suitable wife for Louis de Freshney, who was rather more well-born, but she was in a perfect position, unlike other women who'd sailed around the world for various reasons. She could record it. Yes, exactly. I, I was really struck by that, how lucky you were that not only did she decide she couldn't bear to be away from her husband while he went on his expedition, but that she had the capacity to record it in a, in a lively and, and engaging way. I don't get a sense of the romance between this older captain He's quite a bit older than her, is he about 35? Yes, so 35 years is quite a lot. 35 and she was 19 when they married. So he was 35 when she was 19. So the gap is around, let's say, 15, 16 years. So I, we don't have love, love letters, do we? We don't know anything about the kind of romantic courtship period, do we? No, we don't. And that's, that's I mean, it's obvious that they were deeply in love with each other, but we don't, we don't have any love letters at all. I'm so intrigued about, I suppose I'm really intrigued by Rose's motivation in terms of her deciding that she could not live without this man for however long the expedition might last. I mean, obviously, in those days, one didn't know whether the person who went off on an expedition was even going to come back again. So I can understand to a certain degree that she might think, well, I'm not just going to sit here and wait. But it is quite a radical thing for her to do this and obviously she needed his cooperation so it's also radical for him given the protocols of the navy at the time this was not this was this was illegal this was illegal exactly so it had the potential to jeopardize his career so what do you think about the way the transaction of them agreeing to this how did that happen do you think well they agreed long before the 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 ship took off. It wasn't a last-minute decision the night before he sailed. Oh, we can't be parted. I'll take you on board. He, he was preparing. For, from the time he, he was allotted the ship, he started making provisions to take her, and she started preparing too. I have a theory that because her father, she'd lost her father when, when she was about six years old, and I, I experienced something similar, and I, I know what that gap is like. And then during the revolution, her only brother was, was killed. So she'd lost all the males in her family, and obviously she was deeply in, in love with Louis. But the other thing was he'd had various health problems. He, he, he was the sort of person that... I suspect he may have had stomach ulcers or something like that because if he got anxious, yes, he he tended to to become unwell very quickly, didn't he? To, yes, to, to become un, unwell. 
this was one of the things that the various censors wanted to cut out of the book. Um, really? <laughs> and she thought that she, she could, I can't remember how she put it, relieve his anxieties, care for him. And, of course, she was doing that because he had a valet and a cook, mm-hmm. but she was organising their meals. She, she, she really did take on a role of acting as his secretary, organising their private purse, directing their meals, and, and she was there as a sort of a comfort. Absolutely. No matter what happened. Well, I mean, she was, she was his wife, so, I mean, mm. conjugally, presumably, you know, they had a, an intimate physical relationship. But going back to the thing of it being a sort of threat to his career, as you say, it was illegal, but he'd been preparing for a long time. He'd even built an extra bit on top of the ship, hadn't he, so that she had an extra bit of deck where she could promenade in private. Well, not only promenade, she couldn't be expected to share the toilet facilities with 120 men. So she also had a private place where she could wash. Right. The captain is the only person that has a private lavatory, which is built off the back of the ship. Right. So could, couldn't she have used that? Well, she, she did use that, yes, but right. there was space for, for her to have a bath, a tin bath, which could be filled with seawater. Right. right warmed seawater and she could wash her clothes. I mean, I, I was thinking, you know, her, her menstrual rags oh. and things like that. I mean, where are you going to hang them out? Quite. All of that detail. All, all that detail. It was quite interesting, actually, because it occurred to me that I had no idea when she wasn't dressed in her trousers and coat, pretending to be a boy, to get on the ship. How did she get on the ship? If it wasn't docked with a gangplank, how did she get from the boat that rode out to the ship mm-hmm. up the, the the planks of wood on the side of the ship? You do mention that. You talk about her having to do that in skirts yes. and how inconvenient that would have been. So I love the fact that you do mention those sorts of logistics of just mm. getting from A to B. Well, I rang up the Maritime Museum <laughs> and got onto a librarian in the, or a, a volunteer in the archive and said, look, when a ship's out in the harbour and it has to be boarded from a boat, how did women in the 19th century get on board? Mm. And there was a silence. <laughs> I bet there was. <laughs> and he said, I don't know. I'll get back to you. He actually gave me the name of, of, a, of a woman in New Zealand who'd written on, on whalers' wives who later in history quite often accompanied their husband. So she'd invested. So I wrote to her. I, I, found her, I found her on the internet and wrote to her and, and she, she explained, you know, how the boats could be lowered up and down and, and the woman would be helped into the boat and then helped step over from the waist and, and it, could be, it could be managed, yes. But, of course, if you can't swim and you're wearing long, encumbering skirts, getting on and off a boat when you might be dunked in the water exactly. if, if something goes wrong be quite frightening. And several times she does disembark and she does get soaked in that sort of that, that area between <laughs> disembarking and actually reaching the beach. Yes. There's a wave yeah. and suddenly she's 
Yeah, she's soaked to the skin. She's carried she's carried ashore by a couple of men on their shoulder or something. Yes, but she doesn't arrive looking kind of pristine by by any means. So let's just go back to one one, one dinner party. She had to borrow a dress from the from the hostess from the hostess because she arrived sopping wet. Yeah, I mean, imagine that. So let's just go back to her husband. What would cause him to jeopardize his career by taking this risk? Well, this this puzzled me because he was he was very punctilious. He was a, a loyal naval officer. He he managed to survive. He he was he was a revolutionary or a republican, mm. but he managed to survive the transition back to to the restoration of of the royal family and and maintain his place in the navy. But he his his main allegiance, I think, was to the navy and to the idea of the French navy. So. He was extremely punctilious and and very well aware of the rules. And in fact, he reprimanded one of his seniors for uh, breaking them by suggesting that he and his brother be promoted too soon before the the usual requisite period at sea. So for him to decide to break A, naval regulations about women on, on warships and B, social protocol... It, it could only indicate to me that he, he was deeply in love with her too. Yes, because when you talk about protocol, I'm just thinking he must also have been thinking about the impact on his on his crew, on his 120 men on board ship for three years, what it was like for them to have a woman amongst them. They might have had a deep superstition that she might bring them bad luck. They might have felt a loss of respect for him for having Mm. brought her on board. I mean, there are so many subtleties to that, that he he was putting at risk. It is really, really intriguing. Now, one of the things that is so um, salient in this story and that is crucial really to know that allows Rose to go on this journey is the fact that they were childless. So by the time she stows away on the ship, they've been married for how long? Three years. Three years with no child. And so presumably, I think you you surmise, you theorise, don't you, in the book, that this is what made it much easier for her to go. Because if she had got pregnant at any point in the journey, in terms of morning sickness, general discomfort, and where she would have given birth, that would all have just ramped up all the degrees of difficulty. Yes. The only thing I can think of is that if she had got pregnant, he would have made a long stopover somewhere, or possibly he would have even, if it had been a French colony, he might have left her there and collected her on the way back or, or something like that. But mm. um, yes, it, it, was a, it was a risk. To t- it was definitely a risk to take. But the attitude of the, the rest of the men on the ship is, is really quite interesting because uh, Louis took the officers into his confidence as soon as the ship left. He invited them in for tea and <laughs> presented his, his wife. Ta-da! who by this this stage had changed back into her skirts and she served them tea very politely and they all laughed about the fact that they'd been suspicious that he'd ordered so much jam for the voyage (laughs) because she liked jam for her breakfast and and things like this. But the rest of the, the company, who were a fairly rough bunch, it was quite interesting. I mean, they could have resented her. And I, they accepted her with with a certain amount of good humour, but women were regarded as bad luck 
on ships. And, and my theory is that because it was dangerous, if you had a pretty young woman appearing on the deck when you're 100 feet up on, on a yard arm trying to furl a sail and you're, you're distracted, then it, 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 it could be dangerous. Absolutely. I mean, women were regarded as, as bad luck in, in shearing sheds and factories with dangerous machinery, and I suspect this may be where it, it came from. But on the whole, they, they were reasonably well-behaved. We learn that Jacques Arago, the artist who was on board, the draftsman, observed that when she went out to walk on the deck, they would retreat to the other side if they could and give her space. But apparently when they were shipwrecked, or according again to Arago, she became very worried that if, if, if Louis died or anything, or there was a mutiny, she could be in a very sticky position. I was going to ask you about that when we got to the shipwreck <laughs> on the Falklands, but you've jumped ahead there. Yes, she obviously felt that her position was not safe and secure without her husband's authority. So I'm just trying to imagine what she thinks might have happened to her. Did she think she might be raped, assaulted or left to die somewhere and not brought home? Well, all the, well, as we know from the wreck of the Batavia yes. in, in Western Australia, those fates were extremely possible. Mm. I mean, Arago told her that the men were asking after her and asking if she was all right. And Louis, compared to, say, Nicolas Baudin, inspired a lot of loyalty in his, his, his crew. I mean, they, they behaved well during the, the shipwreck on the whole. They didn't steal food. They they worked for the general good. They trusted him to to. He didn't lose a single man. I know. And he managed to get them off with by negotiating with an American whaler. So they they did trust him and they were loyal to him. I, I think. Yes, they must have sensed that he was a good leader. I think so. Yes, yes, and he was he was a a kind and thoughtful leader in so far as. He planned for the welfare of his men, not just for his officers. I mean, he, he, when he was preparing the voyage, he looked up all the latest information, scientific information about food. He, he, he put in clothing for them. He loaded stills so he could supply fresh water. He, he tried to run a healthy ship Yes, I love all those details. They do show a lot of kind of thoughtfulness around around the welfare of the crew. Let's just talk about since we've jumped ahead there, we've gone we've gone straight for the shipwreck, which is the kind of climax of the story. So we have to backtrack a bit. Where were they sailing to, and what was Louis's mission? What what was he out to do? Well, it was an ex- a scientific expedition to the South Seas, and they were to collect botanical specimens, animals, birds, fishes, all sorts of natural history specimens. But Louis's interest was scientific. He wanted to measure the magnetic equator and measure terrestrial magnetism with pendulums and the way a compass needle dipped due to this magnetism because he thought that this would help him to establish whether the southern hemisphere was exactly the same shape as the northern hemisphere, which, of course, it is. I found it very difficult to evaluate how useful his experiments, his (laughs) meticulous experiments were, but the wealth of natural history specimens they brought back was 
something fabulous. Mm. And he, he also kept a lot of very useful records about various colonies, about Australia, about uh, Guam. He collected a lot of... Uh, it was a very successful ex- expedition. Mm. You mentioned Arago, the artist on board the ship. He was one of the people that she could have a sort of friendship with and have conversation with. And the other one was the priest. There was a priest on on board the ship, wasn't there? And she seems to have been quite devoted from a religious point of view. She seemed to spend a fair amount of time in conversation with him and also praying and just... Was she devout? She was, wasn't she? She was very pious, yes. yes. Although the difference in her letters to her mother, who was extremely pious and, and eventually retired to a convent, and her letters to her friend, Caroline, who, which are much more malicious and gossipy, she was very devout because when the, the ship, again, going to the ship, where she, she prayed... She prayed hard during the shipwreck. There wasn't much she could do uh, during the shipwreck while the ship was in trouble except stack biscuits and, and pray. I think one of the reasons Louis requested a father to, to go on the ship was so that A, Rose would have someone to talk to when he was on duty, and B, so she could hear mass. Ah, of course. How soon do the authorities back in France find out what they've done? Straight away. They suspected at least that that had been what had, what had happened because she was supposed to be going to a, a, a family friend's house to wait for her father-in-law to pick her up and take her back to the Chateau de Fresnay, which was um, 100 miles away or something like that. And instead she disappeared. And so either she'd been she'd fallen foul of bandits or something like that on on the way back to the the chateau, or she must have been she must have left with her husband. <laughs> so they established that yes, in fact, she had left on the ship, and there were stories in the newspaper and and missives going back from the navy to the uh, the court and the various departments and who was responsible and had a crime been committed and and what had happened. And eventually it went all the way to the king. And he said, well, this is something along the lines of, well, this is, yes, very unusual, but I don't think very many other wives are going to emulate her, so let's let's just say as little about it as possible. There was no sense censoring of Freysenet. He wasn't recalled. He wasn't stripped of anything. He wasn't... It just seems that once it got to the king, he just went, oh, well, yes, okay, move on. Yes, well, of course, Louis and, and, and Rose didn't know what was going to happen until they got back to France, whether there would be any, any repercussions. They discovered, I think it was in South Africa, that it had been in the papers and there'd been a scandal, So, and Rose was rather upset about this. But the first time there could have been rep- repercussions was when they reached Reunion. Mm-hmm. Which was a French colony? Which was a French colony. Mm. Mauritius, by that stage, was English, so she was all right there. But they backtracked to Reunion to pick up supplies, which were cheaper than in uh, Mauritius. And it appeared that the governor of, of Reunion had planned to not imprison her, but detain her. Oh, really? Take her off the ship. Right. But when he, when he arrived to meet her, 
he he seemed, you know, quite intrigued and <laughs> impressed with her. And, and the superintendent's wife, who was with us, said, "Oh, you know, you must have you must have enchanted him with your beautiful eyes." There were some places where you got the impression that they a bit got the cold shoulder and were not received in the manner which they had expected or hoped for. And other people seemed to kind of ditch the the protocol and, and say, well, she's here now and she is perfectly charming and she's obviously very socially poised and adept and a bit of an adornment to our dinner table. Generally, people loved her. Mm. I mean, for example, in Sydney, where everyone was a bit bored socially because, you know, not a lot of visitors, suddenly this exotic French woman with very good manners, not a lot of English, but they found that people were competing to have dinner parties to and balls to entertain her. And she made friends, didn't she, with Governor Macquarie's wife? Yes, and also Baron Field's wife, who spoke French. But going back to Gibraltar, Mm. they did put a foot wrong there because it was the first stop and they'd only stopped because the currents were against them getting through the Straits of Gibraltar into the open ocean. So they stopped there for a couple of days just to rest the crew who'd been battling against these adverse conditions and storms. And she went ashore, but... For the sorts of reasons I I described before, she went ashore wearing her trousers and her blue coat Mm. and and a cap with her hair cut. And the governor of Gibraltar, who was English and and rather gruff, sort of said, uh, you know, who's this young man? And Louis said, oh, this is my wife. (laughs) And he sort of looked a bit startled and said... As you would. said, oh, oh, yes, yes, how wonderful. (laughs) And he'd invited them to dinner, assuming that, you know, she was a young officer or aide or something like that. And he then retracted the invitation. Yes. And Arago, this this was only written about by Arago, and he may have exaggerated a little, but he had the theory that, he did, that the governor didn't believe that they were married and that she was just a concubine who'd been brought on 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 board for his convenience. So while he he was you know quite happy to go along with this and you know how clever of you and isn't that wonderful, he wasn't going to entertain her at his dining table. Not in an official capacity. Not in an mm. official capacity. So after that, she always went ashore, correctly dressed as as a woman, and you know nobody doubted that. She, she was, was the legit. She was the legit. Madame de, right. Madame de. Suzanne, what was her health like on the journey? Because she doesn't appear in the correspondence and journal that you quote from to complain a lot about being seasick. She does have persistent headaches, and I wondered whether those were migraines. But otherwise, it seemed to me, you know, you talked before about his possibly stomach ulcers. She seems to me to have been pretty robust. Um, She was younger than he was, and she hadn't grown up particularly pampered or cosseted. So she may have been a bit sturdier than average. But would you say that she she enjoyed pretty good health and that that stood her in good stead? 
Well, she was very lucky that she didn't get seasick, and she surprised a lot of the company because a lot of the you know the, the newcomers to the sea do get seasick, and at least until they get used to it. But she, for some reason, didn't get seasick even in the, in the beginning. So she was very lucky there. But for some reason, when they got into warmer climes, she started suffering from these debilitating headaches. Um, they could have been migraines, or I theorised that there was something on the ship that was she was allergic to. It might have been sulphur that they used for fumigating. It, it might have been the fumes from the tar that sealed the deck. Of course, it, it could have yes. been any any number of things. But she. On quite a lot of occasions, she did, she was incapacitated by these these headaches, including in in Sydney. But I never got to the bottom of of what caused them. Did you ever ask anybody f- with a medical sort of background? I mean, given that you were so diligent about contacting the expert in New Zealand about how does a woman get off a ship, did you look at what the sort of medical complaints for women at the time were around headaches? I did. I did confer with with somebody who knew about historical medicine and illnesses, but there really just wasn't enough information to. I mean, the headaches came and they recurred. And they lasted a long time. But what what caused them? I suspect migraines, as as you say. Yes, yes. Now, what's fascinating, obviously, is her encounters with different cultures along the way. And there are many of them, which is what makes this such a fascinating and rich read. I suppose I'm curious about the fact that in many of the places that she went to, she was confronted with cultures and civilizations where clothing was not always a factor. She must have seen an awful lot more nudity than she had ever seen in her life before. Did you get the impression, given that she was very devout and pious, was she easily shocked, do you think, or not? Or was, was curiosity a bigger factor than her, her prudishness, possibly? I think she was intelligent enough to realise that, you know, in, in some countries, people went naked. I mean, in the, in the Caroline Islands, the, the men and women went naked except on Sundays when they put on something um, in, in honour of it being... Sunday. And in Brazil, I mean, it seemed to me like when they get to Rio, nobody seems to be wearing much. Well, it, it was more to when they landed at Shark Bay. The Aboriginal group they meant were not only black, which would have been confronting to her, and carrying very long, sharp spears, but they, they were all completely naked. Yeah. There was a, a group of uh, a dozen or so completely naked men. She didn't comment on this. Uh, I think by that stage, having been in Brazil and seen black slaves wearing little more than loincloths and things like that, I think she'd she'd become quite pragmatic about this sort of thing. Well, you mentioned slaves there, and to me that is one of the most interesting things, is that obviously she had her first experience of slavery as as a concept, as a practice. What does she say about slavery when she observes it? Does she fully understand what it is? Is she appalled by it? Well, of course, the French had been practising slavery long before the Americans, and it had been abolished during in France during the Revolution, if I remember rightly, but Napoleon had brought it back, but only in the colonies so as to maintain racial purity in in France itself. So although France was a slave-owning country, she would not have 
come in contact with any slaves until they got to Brazil. And of course, Brazil at that point was under the Portuguese. And for whatever reasons, a lot of the slaves were not treated very well. Well, ipso facto, slaves are not treated very well, but maybe, I mean, we should we should probably say that, that obviously nowhere were slaves treated well, but perhaps the mm. Portuguese were particularly harsh masters. Well, I, I, I don't know, uh, you know, I've, I've got no knowledge of... Some of the stories that Jacques Arago told were appalling, and, mm-hmm. I, and one of the... One of the ship's officers went to one of the slave markets and came back in tears, and, and he was he was totally shocked by the crowding, the disease, the 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 just the lack. They were treated worse than animals, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, the the mortality on the the slave trading ships was was huge. Rose wouldn't have seen all this because she couldn't venture into those sorts of environments, but she would have seen slaves. She would have particularly have seen slaves following the women in the streets in, in Brazil, the streets of in Brazil, Rio. in the shopping areas, carrying their their burdens, and they would have been barefoot and quite nicely dressed because that was prestige. But she thought she disapproved of slavery in Brazil. But then, when they got to Mauritius, she fell in with the accepted wisdom, you know, that slaves were an e- economic necessity. And of course, you know, they were treated quite well by the French. <laughs> they were better off than the, the peasants of France. She was a little bit susceptible to received wisdom, and Louis thought slaves should be treated as well as possible, but, they, but it was an economic necessity to have them. And although it might be useful to abolish the slave trade, then but slavery should continue with perhaps enough new slaves being bred from the current stock to this was a, a belief. Mm-hmm. So she is she's a little bit defensive about slavery once she gets to Mauritius, while she's a little bit more worried by it in Brazil. Somewhere along the way, on the journey, she sees a child in Hawaii that takes her fancy and she just cannot understand why the parents don't believe that this child would be better off with her than with them. I mean, that is just so completely... (sighs) I puzzled over that for, for a long time. I mean, given her childlessness, she must have known that with her own longing for a child, any mother who did have a child would be attached. I mean, I don't know whether it was because the wife of, of this American settler in Hawaii was a, of mixed blood. But as I say, you know, this wasn't just some inconvenient, illegitimate child who'd been born by accident. And it wasn't an orphan who didn't have anyone mm. to look after mm. it, where she seemed mm. to regard this child as a commodity that you could just sort of pick out of a shop. When they get to Sydney Cove, she's very excited about the idea of being in a sort of civilised town where she can have sort of a bit of a wider social life and when she, where she can sort of restock and replenish on the comforts of life. And so they, they have a home in Sydney and they are entertained and welcomed in Sydney, but they're robbed, aren't they, in Sydney, so that they're, they're in the rocks and they haven't quite realised that this is a loose area. The first night on shore, mm. uh, Louis, Louis had rented a house to take the scientific instruments to, and it was quite near the observatory on Observatory Hill. It was also very close to the waterfront, so it was extremely convenient, but it was in the rocks. 
So Rose came ashore to spend the first night in Sydney, a day or two after they'd anchored at the other side of the harbour. And a convict wanders in and steals all their, their, their crested silver, their servants' clothes and, and various other items. Tablecloths, napkins, <laughs> whatever they could scoop up. They had to, they had to go out and buy plates and, and knives and forks so they could have their lunch next day. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the local officials were extremely embarrassed and, and Governor Macquarie tried to get them to accept compensation for the silver and... and they had a sort of a battle of politeness about it and Louis wouldn't, wouldn't accept. But despite that, Sydney was, uh, or Port Jackson as it was called then, was their favourite and Rose's favourite stopover. But she, she, she knew all about it from Louis's previous visit with Baudin mm-hmm. when the whole company had been in rather dire straits and they'd been welcomed and looked after and the, the six seamen had been looked after and fed, and Louis had made friends, including with Philip Gidley King, and he had friends that he wanted to look up, and, of course, everybody was keen to entertain them. So they had a very good time. Which is great. It's good to know Mm. that, particularly in light of what comes next, because, of course, then comes the episode that we've already talked about, which is the shipwreck, which is so miserable. It just sounds so terrible. So the shipwreck happens on the Falklands. And she, again, you know, I was saying that I thought that she had quite robust health. She, She doesn't strike me as a very complaining person. I mean, on the Falklands, yes, it rains and it's cold. Um, she's lost her clothes, she's lost everything virtually. I mean, they've tried to save some of the things on the ship while it's sort of listing or it's aground before it's it's sunk. But she's quite stoic and practical. When she's on the Falklands and they've set up this kind of encampment, you say that she tries baking and she tries making beer. <laughs> well, I think they got sick of eating penguins. Well, you would, wouldn't you? (laughs) And in fact, didn't they feed one of her precious pigs eight penguins and she found that the meat, as a result, reeked of penguin oil and she couldn't face eating the pork? Yes, I think you'd get sick of penguins on your first penguin (laughs) because the the flesh is apparently very unpleasant to eat and and extremely oily. Fortunately, there'd there'd been some unsuccessful settlements on on the Falklands and, and... some pigs and cattle and horses had had been left behind, which had, had survived quite well and, and, and bred up. And so whalers used to come in to re- renew their supplies of fresh meat if, if they could. So they sent out hunting parties, which managed to get a, a bit of a, a bit of meat that was a change from penguins. And there were also geese until they nearly shot them out. But yes, I think they missed. They missed vegetables, and of course they didn't have any flour, or they very little flour. They were able to rescue a lot from the ship. Yes, they um, had time. They had, they had time because what had ha- happened was that they called into the Falklands to replenish the water, replenish supplies and so forth, and do some repairs because going going round the, the Horn, the ship had become a bit damaged. But they were unlucky enough while trying to keep off the coast for safety to hit a submerged pinnacle of rock, which put a hole in the, in the hull of the ship. So they managed to limp on and they sent out a boat to try and find a sandy beach because most of the coast was rocky 
a sandy beach where they could beach the ship and hopefully repair it and, mm. and put people ashore. They finally managed to do that, but by this time the ship was so damaged that, and the, the weather was so rough that it was being lifted up and shattered on the bottom, and finally it broke up. But in the days before it broke up, they were able to get all the all the specimens, the natural history, all the papers, including Rose's journal, all the important things, the grog, <laughs> guns, <laughs> everything they needed, sails, which they made into tents, mm-hmm. spars, which they used as tent poles and things. They managed to get an awful lot of stuff ashore. I mean, everybody mourned the things they couldn't get ashore, but... Louis then and the officers, who were very efficient, set up, you know, tents for the cadets, tents for the crew, tents for the officer, tents for the uh, the ammunition and, and the, the alcohol, which they put a guard in front of. They organised themselves quite well, hunting parties, watch parties to sig- try and signal if any, a ship came by. So, yes, the, it was it was quite a well-managed shipwreck. But she kept herself busy, didn't she? She didn't just sit in a corner of her tent going, woe is me, into her diary. She did things. Well, Louis gave her various duties, such as sorting out papers. And and when they did manage to fight, a whaler came in that agreed to take them off. He put her in charge of boxing up all the things they had to take with them and writing letters for him to be sent uh, with another ship that happened to come in a bit later, various things like that. But mainly he became quite ill, and my theory is partly from the anxiety and and his grief at losing his ship mm. and, and the shame and grief of, of losing the ship when they were thought they were on their way home. They thought, you know, the expedition was over, they had a clear run home, and this disaster happens. So she nursed him. I mean, she writes one letter where she's sitting with a with a, a little spirit lamp that's boiling a half a chicken to make broth for Louis because he can't swallow anything. He can't swallow anything solid. So and she's writing her journal to, to Caroline saying, you know, it's midnight. The only sound I can hear is there's the waves washing on the beach a few feet away and this sound will remain with me forever. And, and the bubbling of this chicken, which I'm, I'm, I'm cooking for, for Louis, poor Louis. So she was quite practical. I mean, at one stage as well, I think she's responsible, isn't she, for drying out the ship's biscuit so that the supplies and the stores are kept in good order. Mm. So mm. she wasn't... She wasn't Ration, a, organising the, the rationing. Yes, yeah. so she, yeah. was, she was someone who could be given a task and who could roll up her sleeves and get on with it. Well, I I think before she married, she'd been helping her mother run the school with all these pupils, which would have, and they were boarders from foreign countries learning French quite often, and so she would have been helping to run a, a household. I mean, she could she could sew, she could cook, she she would never have had a lady's maid. So all all the things that you have to do in a, in that situation, she knew how to do. Yes, I mean, I think I remember... She even turned on a dinner party. I know, I was just going to ask you about that. The fact that she managed to entertain. So I think that at one stage she manages to prepare a dinner and serve a dinner, a more than passable dinner under the circumstances, to 11 guests on the Falklands. And I think there's even a cherry tart in there somewhere. <laughs> Me? Yes, well... 
Louis, Louis's forethought had been to bring on board the ship this new invention of, of cans and bottles that had been immersed in boiling water and preserved. I mean, this was a new development that had been used to feed some of Napoleon's army. And and you could keep food for a couple of years when it was preserved like this, rather than just dried, dried meat, which eventually deteriorated. And you know other things that were, were long lasting so she had she had some fruit yeah cherries as a, she had she had various things negotiations with these americans these american whalers who were going to have to give up their whaling season to rescue the french in return for remuneration were extremely rocky mm-hmm. the the americans were quite avaricious and they wanted they to they were they were driving a hard bargain uh, oh yeah they they wanted they wanted it to be worth their while and so as a as a diplomatic overture <laughs> she invited them all to dinner and she managed to to turn out you know there were sort of pâtés of snipe which one of the officers had shot there was the last pig made into into um a a, a rolled pork Dish there, there was there were there was something like seven courses, and they had a, a a little bit of wine left over, which you know also went down very well. And just this extraordinary thing of, of turning out this French dinner party <laughs> in a shipwreck camp <laughs> to butter to butter up the 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 Americans that that they wanted to rescue them. It, it was uh, so. Do you think that she was, in story. a sense, responsible for them successfully ne- the negotiations going well and them getting off the island? Well, I don't, I don't think you could say that. I mean, eventually, the you know the French government was up for quite a lot of money to first hire and then eventually buy the ship that took them off. But I'm sure their mood was. I mean, the Americans had been living on hard tack and hadn't prepared very well. So, to be given this superb meal. It, it must have helped. It must, it have, must helped. have helped. Now, when she gets home, eventually she does get home back to France. How was she received back home? Was she received with curiosity, with indifference? Was she made into some kind of a heroine? I mean, what, what kind of reception did she get? Well, she didn't bring any attention to herself when she got back. I mean, Louis, Louis was in a tricky position. He'd lost his ship through no real fault of his own. It was, it was one of those accidents that could have happened to anyone. He hadn't done anything wrong. But if you lose your ship, you're court-martialed. Yeah. So he had to undergo a court-martial, and, and at the end of it, he was handed back his sword and exonerated, and they said, you know, the, he'd done everything he could. He hadn't lost any men. He'd managed the uh, ship wreck very well and, and returned with all the spe- almost all the specimens and papers to France. But the interesting thing was Rose wasn't mentioned at all. This major misdemeanor Incredible. was not mentioned. And he had an audience with the king afterwards who mm. congratulated him and, and gave him the news that he was being promoted to post-captain and to all intents and purposes, the king didn't mention it either. So what do you make of that, Suzanne? I, I find that really baffling, but is that just because I don't understand the protocol and the customs of the day and that women were already so invisible as to be irrelevant? I think I think the officials just decided it was best to pretend it hadn't happened. I don't think it was an insult to Rose, 
but she didn't want to bring attention to herself and she lived very quietly after that. She didn't advertise the fact that she'd done this. She'd never never intended her journal to be published or her letters to be published. I think one of the most shocking things to me about this whole story and how much she managed to pack into her life and her husband, after all, being the one with the recurring illness throughout the voyage is I was absolutely stopped in my tracks when I read how old she was when she died. She was 37 She died in the cholera epidemic of 1832, and the tragic thing was Louis had had come down with it and she nursed him through the illness. But she'd had stomach problems herself and she, she was in a rather debilitated state. And a few days after Louis got it, or after Louis was recovered, she contracted it and she died within a day or two. That detail of Rose, who survived so much, being felled by a pandemic is sobering in its modern-day resonance. So many scenes from this story make it sound like perfect material for a movie. The bold plotting of stowing away, the differing reactions of official hosts along the way, the moments of culture shock, the climax of the shipwreck, and that dinner party with the cherry tart. Suzanne Falconer's biography puts Rose de Fresine squarely back into the picture where she deserves to be. I'm convinced that her husband was lucky that she made the decision to join him. Thank you for listening to this seafaring episode of Life Sentences. The series was produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Pipe Wolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional owners, the Wadi Wadi people. Music composed and performed by Amanda Brown.